When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor, Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy to digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Let's do one more of these, then let's switch gears to some interstitial lung disease. So what about folks, this 30 year old woman is evaluating the ED after she was rescued uh, from her home uh, where her leather sofa caught fire. A lot of fire questions tonight. She is intubated, she's unconscious, probably her Glasgow coma scale was very low on exam. She's normal tensive, you know, heart rate of 100, respiratory rate of 24 on the vent. Uh, O2 sat's 100%. Um, her O2 sat is 100% on the vent, but she's on 50% FiO2. She is unresponsive. She has no visible burns on her skin and her airway secretions are clear. Brainstem reflexes are all intact. And so we have serum labs. Sodium looks normal, potassium is normal, chloride is normal, bicarb is low at 13. Oh boy. We have an arterial blood gas. pH is low at 7.29. PaCO2 is 28. So just right there, it seems that the patient has the metabolic that's right, metabolic acidosis. And anytime someone has a metabolic acidosis, I mean, you really like to know, is there a gap or not? And you know what? We got the sodium, the chloride, the bicarb, and the answer is, yeah, looks like there's a, an ungap metabolic acidosis. And of course, we could take it all the way and we could calculate compensations. And of course, for the pulmonary boards, they are going to have triple acid-based disorders. But for time's sake, it really looks like there is an ungap metabolic acidosis going here that the PO2 is really good, doesn't seem hypoxic at all. The carboxyhemoglobin level being in a house that, you know, that caught on fire is normal and met hemoglobinemia. So they did a, you know, probably brought the arterial blood glass to a co-oximeter. So the met hemoglobin level is also normal. And look at here, the lactic acid is elevated, probably reason why she has that NIGAP metabolic acidosis. All right. So which of the following is the most appropriate treatment for this patient that we're talking about here with the house fire and a leather couch i guess the choice the choices are a hydroxocobalamin b hyperbaric oxygen uh, c methylene blue and d a nitrate sodium nitrate all right i, I mean i gotta tell you i i think i'm really liking this question um i wish i could see all of you what, what do you folks think is the right answer 
<clears throat> well, let's do our process of elimination, okay? So which one of these do you feel you could probably cross out before we start analyzing what she has? I'm pretty sure we could take out hyperbaric oxygen. Why? Well, in number one, it's going to be pretty tough. She's intubated on the vent, but her carboxyhemoglobin levels what? Normal. All right, so it's not carbon monoxide toxicity. Um, should we? Yeah, yeah. See, does she need methylene blue? Probably not. I mean, her hemoglobin levels what? It's normal. Okay, so I'm kind of bullied into hydroxycobalamin and sodium nitrate. So what does she have, by the way? I mean, what can you get inhalationally in a, in a house fire that can give you an, you know, an anion-gap metabolic acidosis, specifically a lactic acidosis? Yeah, I kind of gave it away, didn't I? I'm sorry. I mean, it's probably cyanide toxicity. And we see that quite commonly with carbon monoxide toxicity. And what did I say? How do you die from, you know, cyanide toxicity? It, inhibits oxidative phosphorylation. So if you inhibit it, you can't make what? You know, you can't make ATP and you need oxygen to make ATP. So what's gonna happen? You're gonna start developing a lactic acidosis. So this sounds like cyanide toxicity. And with that being said, what's the right answer? Hydroxycobalamin, or do you wanna induce a, you know, a hemoglobinemia with a nitrate? And the answer is? A, A is an apple. So many of you are asking why? So, you know, I'm not taking back what I just taught you on the following question. In the olden days, when we talked about how do you treat cyanide toxicity, sometimes you may want to induce a hemoglobinemia, but things have changed. And when someone's already hypoxic on the ventilator requiring 50% oxygen, you don't want to risk it and induce a hemoglobinemia and make things actually worse. And beyond that, there is an antidote now that you need to memorize. And yes, on our pulmonary and critical care boards, we still have to do a lot of memorizing. So hydroxycobalamin is actually, it binds to cyanide to produce cyanocobalamin, which is a soluble, non-toxic, readily excreted product. And that really is the antidote. You know, and like I mentioned earlier, that inducing a hemoglobinemia, you know, and especially in someone who's already on the vent on 50%, you know, there's just too much risks of making things worse, especially now that we have a very safe um, antidote in these cases. And many times cyanide and carbon monoxide poisoning go hand in hand. So, you know, I really hope, you know, everyone listening really enjoyed those last three questions. You know, there was, they were always very confusing to me. Carbon monoxide, hemoglobinemia, and cyanide, and what happens from an oxygen standpoint, all those are high yield for the boards, okay? So switching gears, let's talk about a 65-year-old woman <clears throat> with a 20-year history of Sjogren's is seen uh, for an abnormal CT scan. And there it is right here. And you guys can start analyzing it. Um, she has mild uh, non-progressive dysmion exertion, but no fevers, weight loss, or cough. On exam, her vital signs are within normal limits. Her with clear lung fields and heart sounds are normal. And no clubbing is noted. Labs have a hemoglobin that's normal at 13.5. Serology's ANA, the titer, is super high. Double-stranded also seems to be positive. Uh, SSA and SSB, which is anti-rho and anti-la, they're both positive. And they got some PFTs. Total lung capacity is normal. FVC is normal. FEV1 is normal. The ratio, pretty normal. And DLCO, net 85%, also screams normal. She does a six-minute walk. She walks a 1,000 feet with an O2 set of 96% on room air, and she's good. 
you know, um, she doesn't need any supplemental oxygen on exercise. It only went down to like 94. And of course, they got a high resolution CT scan of the chest. And I'm, you know, putting it right here. And, you know, what, am, what are we looking at? I think we see a lot of these cysts over here. So I see a lot of cysts, you know, and of course, you know, when we're talking about the pulmonary boards, do they love talking about cystic lung disease on the pulmonary boards? The answer is yes, right? Whether we're talking about Langerhans, cystiocytosis, upper lobe, whether we're talking about LAM in, you know, in women, they love cystic lung disease, right? And of course, many of you are talking about, you know, people who have a very specific, you know, idiopathic interstitial lung disease, they may have something called, you know, lymphocytic interstitial pneumonitis, LIP, and you know what? People with Sjogren's can definitely develop, you know, interstitial lung disease, but all I see here is a lot of cysts and what could be going on. So what is the next best course of action in this patient? You know what I mean? 65 year old woman, mild uh, progressive uh, dyspnea. There's the PFTs, doesn't require oxygen. So would you perform a surgical lung biopsy? A, would you start immunosuppressive therapy? C, perform serial imaging? D, bronchial with some transbronchial biopsies. So a couple things. Number one, is this someone that you want to treat? Do you think that at this stage with those findings and, you know, with her symptoms and PFTs, does she warrant therapy at this time? And, you know, for me, the answer is no. You know, if she's having worsening dyspnea exertion, you know, the PFT is having a reduced DLCO, FPC is on the lower side. Yeah, maybe I would start it. Anytime I want to start immunotherapy, you know, in most cases, you know, I may want to, dis, uh, you know, confirm the diagnosis, especially in a patient like this. Um, so I don't think we need to start immunotherapy. And because of that, I don't think getting tissue at this time is going to be, you know, the most important thing because she essentially is asymptomatic. What would I do in this specific case? You know, I'd probably just want do some serial imaging. So let's talk about Sjogren's, which will be on your board and some of the lung manifestations. So right here, 20% of patients with Sjogren's have pulmonary disease of clinical what? Significance. But a much greater prevalence exists out there of asymptomatic abnormalities. So what does this sound like? Yeah, that asymptomatic abnormalities. So when we talk about ILDs, and this is, you know, I wish we had all the time in the world. Of course, one way to categorize ILDs, according to the, uh, the American Thoracic Society, is going to be having these idiopathic interstitial pneumonitis, and of course, that other branch is going to be secondary to rheumatological diseases. So Sjogren's, you know, can give you an NSIP pattern, nonspecific interstitial pneumonitis. They can give respiratory bronchiolitis, UIP pattern, usual interstitial pneumonitis. Of course, LIP, which just could be, and of course, something else called organizing pneumonia. And, you know, ILD, you know, in, um, most of these Sjogren's patients is often indolent with a relatively stable lung function. One I really worry about it, of course, if you start saying UIP, we're talking about pulmonary fibrosis, and that could have a very 
horrible outcome in some in most cases. You know, what does this CT scan show right here? It actually is more characteristic of something, and this is why I put the question here, is called follicular bronchiolitis. So of course, many of you are gonna ask me, what are you talking about follicular bronchiolitis? And I wanted to say follicular bronchiolitis it exists on a continuum with LIP. And how do I kind of break this down just for this small question here is that, you know, if you have follicular bronchiolitis, you could get, you'll have multiple cysts like in the CT scan, the one cut I showed you. When we talk about LIP beyond just having multiple cysts, you usually will have a lot of ground glass opacities, which I didn't see in that cut. And you could have a a lot of central lobular nodules and we didn't see that either in that one cut so remember follicular bronchiolitis on a continuum with lip lip has the ground glass and has some central lobular nodules and i have another picture of that coming up you know what i mean and i stole my own thunder here is going to be this you know cysts this is an lip patient you see the ground glass and there is some central uh lobular nodularity over there how do we treat some of these uh this ild secondary to sjogren's well because it's a rheumatological disease and rheumatological disease can give you any of these ilds you know we treat it two ways number one inflammation and number two fibrosis so for the anti-inflammatory component of course we work with our rheumatologist for Sjogren's, you know, oral medications like mycophenolate or brand name Imuran would be very reasonable to consider these medications. Of course, this is based upon side effect profile and dosing. And in severe cases, if they don't tolerate, you know, a Celsept or Imuran, you can do IV infusions of rituximab in these cases. Usually that's given, you know, every six months, rituximab being a biologic, you know, and that's talking about inflammation. When we talk about the fibrosis component, there's only one medication that got FDA approval for essentially many different ILDs. In fact, almost all the ILDs with a very specific phenotype, this progressive fibrotic phenotype, this chronic progressive fibrotic phenotype. And once you hit this stage, uh, and this could happen in people who have, you know, uh, an ILD secondary to Sjogren's, Natinanab, which goes by the brand name OFIB, definitely got FDA approval for this, and it decreases the decline in the FBC if you initiate this medication in these individuals who have that progressive fibrotic phenotype. So Sjogren's, I want to kind of whip through this part pretty quick because I want to get back to another question. I just want you to know that, you know, Sjogren's can affect every single organ in the body. Sjogren's comes in two forms primary, not really associated with other diseases, and secondary, that's usually uh, attached to many other rheumatological diseases, most common being rheumatoid arthritis. Whether you have a primary or secondary Sjogren's, you know, you could have what's called the uh, glandular features. The classic ones are going to be the dry eyes and the dry mouth, or you could have extra glandular disease. And that's what we're talking about here when we talk about the lung, the extra glandular features of Sjogren's. Of course, you know, on your boards, they love giving pictures that make you hint about what the diagnosis is going to be. You know, always think about zero stoma, the dry mouth, zero ophthalmia, the dry eyes, salivary gland enlargement, huge parotid glands, submandibular glands, you have abnormally dry skin, we call that cirrhosis. Think about having these pictures on your boards. Of course, because of the dental caries from the lack of saliva, Dentists often refer to 
you know, to rheumatology for Sjogren's. Look at the parotid gland enlargement. And of course, you know, any rheum disease can have many different associations with skin findings. Beyond cirrhosis, you could definitely get annular erythema, erythema nodosum, which can also be seen in diseases like sarcoid, inflammatory bowel disease, fungal infections like coccidioides emetis, and of course, SLE and Sjogren's, you know, or nonspecific things like levito reticularis. And I wanted to put this to show you the extra glandular features, you know, can be associated with, you know, autoimmune pancreatitis, like IgG4 disease. You can get lymph nodes and lymphoma. And of course, people, especially with primary Sjogren's, are going to have a very high risk of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. You could develop renal tubular acidosis, type 1 in the distal convoluted tubule. And of course, lung interstitial lung disease. And of course, I have a picture down here of classic honeycombing. This is a UIP pattern, secondary to Sjogren's. So they could get, you know, uh, unfortunately, UIP and SIP. And like we mentioned in this particular question, a follicular bronchiolitis, we're just going to monitor at this time. And that's on the continuum with something like LIP. And if you want to make the diagnosis, you know, the gold standard is always going to be doing a biopsy. We do it right here on the lip. We don't need to take out the product gland or anything. It's a there's minor salivary glands in the lip, and it helps make the diagnosis. We don't do Schirmer's testing, you know, as much anymore. Serologically, like in this vignette, they are classically ANA positive, and they could have an anti-rho or anti-la positive, which is otherwise known as SSB, SSA, and SSB respectively. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.